Welcome back, everybody, to the MMA meeting, Let's Talk with the Weasel podcast, where we talk all things MMA, sometimes dive into other combat sports. And a lot has happened since the last episode. So in boxing, Deontay Wilder got through Dominic Brazil. I don't want to talk too much about it because I already made a breakdown in my point of view of the three top heavyweights right now. But that knockout was beautiful, man. It cemented Deontay Wilder as one of, if not the hardest puncher in boxing history. I'm not talking pound for pound because pound for pound, it could be Julian Jackson or Gerald McClellan. But just overall pure punching power, Deontay Wilder might be number one in boxing. The other top guys, you know, George Foreman, Ernie Shaver, some say Mike Tyson. There's many other boxers out there. I don't think anyone has more convincing evidence that they are the hardest puncher than Deontay Wilder because... When Wilder connects with that right hand, it's lights out almost every single time. We've seen George Foreman fight Joe Frazier, where he has to knock him down like six, seven times, and Frazier kept getting up. He connected a lot of people multiple times before they went down. And sometimes they never went down, like Muhammad Ali, for an example, who he bombed on for the entire fight. And you also have Ernie Shavers, who I would say is a harder puncher than George Foreman. And a lot of people of that era actually agree. Muhammad Ali, I think, even agreed to that. But Ernie Shavers was just pretty much a big puncher. He wasn't as technical or as savvy as George Foreman was. He didn't have the positioning awareness and all that sort of stuff. But then again, Ernie Shavers, he went through fights where he couldn't knock the guy out or knock him down that easily like Wilder was able to. And the crazy thing is, Wilder weighs like 40 pounds, 30 pounds less than these guys, and he still hits harder than them. People say Mike Tyson as well. I made a case that I don't think Mike Tyson has the brute power of these other heavyweights, I think there's more factors involved, such as the ability to go to the body, change targets, go to the head, which is what Mike Tyson really excelled at. And he credited a lot of his knockouts to that fact that he was able to go to the body and go to the head. And when you do that, you're able to knock the opponent out easier. And he's also very, very fast to get in. I'm not saying he's not a hard puncher. Obviously, he's one of the hardest punchers. But I don't think he punches as hard as guys like Wilder or Foreman or Shavers. And there are boxers who have fought both George Foreman and Mike Tyson, such as Evander Holyfield, who said that even an older George Foreman hit harder than Mike Tyson. So, yeah, pretty much the point is, I think Wilder hits harder than any boxer ever. And then people put him up against Francis Ngannou. It's almost impossible to tell. It's almost impossible to tell. Because they both knock opponents out with one shot. Maybe Ngannou hits harder, maybe, because you can say he doesn't connect flush all the time. And he still puts people limp, such as his Curtis Blaze knockout. He kind of slap punched him and drove his head to the ground. Or his extremely tight uppercut on Cain Velasquez, which made him go limp. You know, these aren't flush, full power, full range of motion punches that he's knocking people out with. But the thing is, Wilder weighs like 50 pounds less than Ngannou. So that's impressive, man. But the entire thing is him, Joshua, and Fury have to fight each other. I do think Joshua is the most well-rounded of the three. Wilder is the biggest puncher. And Fury is the most technical. The only thing Joshua doesn't have that the other two have is good cardio. In his last fight, he did show pretty good cardio. But to go at a high pace for 12 rounds, we haven't really seen that out of Joshua yet. And that is where his opponents are going to be able to start connecting on him. So even if he fights Wilder, I do favor Joshua to win. If he starts getting tired out there, Wilder can land that one big shot and put him out. You know, with Fury... Fury can start taking over the fight and there is no chance for Joshua to come back. It's interesting, man. That is why these three heavyweights, it's like that new era, you know. In the 70s and 80s, you had Frazier, Foreman, and Ali, who really defined the heavyweights of that era. 
And then you had like Mike Tyson and Vander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis who defined that era like the 90s, early 2000s. And now you have these three. So it's extremely exciting. And you always have the next tier such as Lewis Ortiz, you know, of this era. You had Ken Norton when Ali was fighting. Even though you can actually put him with Ali, Frazier, and Foreman because most people believe that Ken Norton beat Ali three times. So in MMA, a lot's happened. Sage Northrop got obliterated by Cosmo Alexander, and people seem to say that they threw Sage Northcott to the Wolves early. Obviously, it's not the easiest fight in the world because he is fighting a veteran, a high-level kickboxer in his first fight at one, and he got knocked out, but it was a very winnable fight, wrestling. He did not attempt one takedown. He tried to kickbox with him. You just played into this guy's game completely. And it's in the ring. It's a familiar environment for Cosmo Alexander. Takedowns right off the bat would have given him a major opportunity to win that fight. It was a huge window to win that fight. It just showed Saints Northcutt just doesn't have the fight IQ yet. Even though he is getting up there with experience in MMA, he's getting a lot of fights on his resume. The IQ is just not following, man. I mean, anybody, anybody with any showing of wrestling would have tried to take this guy to the ground immediately. Heck, Paul Daly would have probably took him to the ground. I mean, it's just disappointing, man. Fighters don't use all of their weapons to win a fight, or if there's a path of least resistance, they just don't go to it. Sage Northcutt walked, skilled the ring to his left, and it is a ring, right? So it acts like a wall, and he didn't use the ropes. So he was acting like the ropes was a wall behind him. So he tried to move out to the left and right into the right hook. He is used to the cage. The octagon has a lot more curvature for you to move out as well as laterally. So if it was an octagon, he has a better opportunity to get away from the right hook as well as moving out to his left. In the ring, he walked right into the right hook without any defense at all. He actually tried to throw a left hook himself while moving out to his left. I mean, there's a lot of error there. A lot of error. So that was pretty crazy. And there's a lot of fight announcements getting out there. Well, first, the bad news. Tyron Woodley's out of his fight with Robbie Lawler, which was going to be an amazing fight. I wanted to see that rematch. And to be honest, I think it was a little bit of a lucky matchup for Robbie Lawler because he just lost to Ben Askren, and he's down in the rankings, and he's going to fight the number one contender. Off a loss to Ben Askren. It's going to be interesting if that's going to happen again for him, if they're going to throw someone like Woodley at him again. But Robbie Lawler, it looks like he turned down all other options besides Woodley or if it was going to be Ben Askren. And I have a feeling he's not going to get either of them. You know, I wanted to see him versus Ponzinibbio. That was 100% the fight I wanted to see because they're both very close in the ranks and they're both explosive, exciting fighters. It would have been a great fight, but... For Robbie Lawler, going from Woodley to Ponzinibbio in the rankings, his management probably didn't want to do that. You know, it didn't do too much for him. And everybody was calling him out throughout the entire division, pretty much. From Darren Hill to Mike Perry, Leon Edwards to Zaleski Dos Santos to Ponzinibbio. Everybody wanted to fight him. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to sit this one out, wait for Woodley or something. And then Nate Diaz versus Anthony Pettis got announced out of nowhere. I mean, Nate Diaz has been out for three years, and he's coming back against Anthony Pettis, of all people. And his team actually reached out to Pettis' team before the UFC even knew this was going on. And they were like, you want to fight? Yeah, I want to fight. Okay, let's fight. All right, let's fight. And then they took it to the UFC. It was like, okay. I love that story, though. I love that kind of thing. I wish fighters would do this more often, set up fights between themselves, and then let the UFC know, you know, this is the thing that we both want to do here. And it's a good fight. I mean, Anthony Pettis and Nate Diaz is exciting. And supposedly they have beef. Now, I could be a bit of a skeptic. When I see Anthony Pettis on Irrawani show, 
and talk about how he hates Nate Diaz or he doesn't like him and the reasons he gave, I think he's playing it up for the fans here or just trying to make the fight a little bit bigger. Because first of all, Nate Diaz's team reached out to Anthony Pettis' team before anything, right? Potentially, they could have talked to each other about this. And Nate Diaz picked Anthony Pettis for a reason. For I don't know what the reason was, but he did. Maybe because Pettis just fought at 170 and he sees that as an opportunity for a fight at 170. It's a better weight class for both of them to fight each other. And when Ariel was asking Anthony Pettis, why do you hate Nate? He's like, I don't know. I just don't like the dude. You know, ever since tough and stuff, like he didn't really give anything specific. It was just, I don't like the dude. Okay. I don't mind, I guess, because Nate seems to be real. If you come at him with that kind of thing at the press conferences or weigh-ins, get in his face and stuff, he's going to take it like, okay, this guy wants to scrap. Okay, we'll scrap. And he'll get serious about it. So it's still going to be fun to watch, still going to be entertaining. And the fight, it depends if it's three rounds or five rounds. Now, it's not a title fight. I don't think it's a main event either. I think it's on a pay-per-view. It has to be five rounds. I mean, why can't we do that? With fights like this, with fights like Tony Ferguson versus Donald Cerrone, why can't they just be a five-round fight? Why can't they just put that in the contract? Now, if it is a three-round fight, I heavily favor Anthony Pettis to win. Heavily favor. The kicks are going to be too much. The light kicks. The speed that he has. He does have knockout power. His BJJ is enough to compete with Nate's. Now, if it's a five-round fight, things get a lot more interesting. Nate can go five rounds, and his volume is constant throughout the fight. And Pettis sometimes slows down in fights. And with a guy like Nate on top of you, the energy levels is not just going to go down, it's going to plummet throughout the fight. Because you're landing bombs on this guy, he's covering up, he's rolling, he's pulling on the punches, maybe you're getting connected by them, and he's just not going away. You're wasting all of this energy hitting this guy, and he just keeps coming at you. Then he starts doing combinations and all this stuff, ties up with you against the cage, uses his weight, uses his size, and just completely decreases the energy of his opponent. I still think Anthony Pettis should win a five-round fight, but it can go either way, man. And the Tony Ferguson and Don Cerrone fight, I already covered that in a video. If you guys haven't checked that out, I recommend you guys checking that out. Absolutely great fight. The only thing is, it should be five rounds, 100%. It actually should be the main event. Throw throw Henry Sudo and Marlon Moraes to co-main event. Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica I as the fight under that. And Ferguson versus Cerrone main event. And to be honest, if they do that, it's going to get a lot more eyeballs. Tony Ferguson is bigger than anybody else in that card. Donald Cerrone is also bigger than everybody on that card. Having them fight each other and promote it like a main event, I think it will be just so much more successful for the business and for the fans. It'll be awesome for the fans as well. The Shevchenko versus Jessica I fight, I mean, it doesn't really have to be five rounds, does it? I mean, come on. We pretty much know what's going to happen there. The Cejudo and Moraes fight, five rounds. It's a good fight, very competitive. Leave that as it is, but put it at the co-main event. And I want to talk a little about the ESPN Plus deal. Now... I said it before that this is going to hurt their pay-per-views because when you make things harder to obtain, it surpasses the price of it. People don't want things to be harder for them, you know. Go through two paywalls just to watch fights, where for 20 plus years, it was just pay the pay-per-view and watch the fights. That's it. They're used to the boxing model as well. Boxing did this for a long time. And now when you do this whole thing where it's only digital, you can't really watch it on TV, of course... So many people are not going to watch it. Does a 100,000 pay-per-view buy from Poirier and Max Holly surprise me? No, not at all. To be honest, I expect it to be lower. I expect it to be around 80,000. With Rose and Jessica Andrade, I won't be surprised if it's 50,000. People will say this won't hurt the brand. Yes, this can hurt the brand. I understand the organization isn't really losing in money right now. But if this trend continues and people just aren't coming on board with this all of a sudden subscription model just to watch a pay-per-view... You lose fans. I mean, you lose people that generally would want to watch the sport, but because you make it so hard for them to watch it, 
They're just not going to go through the trouble. And then this just becomes a short-term project with potential great damage to the fan base and to the viewers. The viewers at the end of the day is the most important thing for the business. And when you lose the viewers, you pretty much lose everything. So if anything, if they want people to subscribe and start watching pay-per-views, lower the pay-per-view price, right? If they find out it's half price, but all I have to do is just sign up for this subscription base, I think a lot more people would be willing to do it, but you also have to promote that, right? Because people aren't just going to know. So let's say you buy the ESPN Plus thing and the pay-per-view is like 25 bucks. I think it will be a success. It shouldn't be 60, 50, 55. It shouldn't even be anywhere near that range now. Um, look at the WWE. I don't think they do that anymore. I think their pay-per-views or their big events, such as you know WrestleMania, SummerSlam, all that stuff, aren't they still pretty cheap comparable to the subscription and theirs is booming i mean wwe is bigger than it's ever been i think right and the thing i don't like the most is it hurts the fighters man as a business it does what it does but for the fighters it seems like it's really gonna hurt them it seems like they're not gonna make as much money as before but also i don't see fighters complaining about this the only one that probably complained was brock lesnar because he didn't come back for the reason that he didn't come back because the money wasn't what he wanted and perhaps he wanted what that 15 million whatever it was because of the whole model for pay-per-view now i don't see anybody else complaining so maybe they know something we don't and if they do if they're fine i have nothing to complain about and did you guys see conor mcgregor had this interview with tony robbins and he said some real stuff out there man super inspiring talking about things like motivation and how his motivation would drop sometimes and how he had to get it up and he doesn't allow external things to clash with his internal drive you know and all that sort of stuff you know just a lot of great stuff he was saying out there and he says something during the interview that just rings in my ear like someone set off the bell of good luck he said your lack of commitment is an insult to the people who believe in you i want to give back to those people that believe in me I mean, that quote itself, that will stick with me for a while, to be honest. And there's a lot of people that can listen to those words to create some motivation for themselves to use their talents, use their skills and stuff like that. Because I haven't said this before, but my biggest pet peeve for other people and downright almost fear for myself is a waste of talent. Or a better way to say it is a waste of passion. And a lot of people today, I believe, can follow that path, can listen to some of those words and better themselves and make themselves happier. Uh, I would love to get into this more, love to talk about this more, but it is an MMA podcast and you know, I don't want to uh, get distracted from that. Awesome stuff by Connor, man. I mean, this is the Connor that we miss. Said a lot of real stuff, man. I highly recommend you guys watching that interview. Of course, he talked about the Habib stuff. And of course, his competitive side takes over him. And he will say things that you probably won't like. Such as Habib landed that lucky overhand. You know, he said it again. He said that he had a terrible weight cut. He was injured before the fight. Um, You know, just a lot of these things of why he lost. Like the training camp was completely opposite of what he's used to doing. Such as they focus too much on defense when he said, all I ever do is offense. I mean, straight up excuses, let's be honest here. But he's trying to make a, I guess, convincing argument that there should be a rematch for whatever reason. There should not be a rematch. They'll say, yeah, but it brings a lot of money. But it's on ESPN+. Plus. How big would the pay-per-view actually be now? Before it did 2.4 million, right? I expect the pay-per-view on ESPN+, Plus to do somewhere around like maybe 700,000. Maybe. It just makes it so hard for people to watch. Let's be honest here. The ESPN Plus deal, it's good for the organization because I think they get a set pay. But for the fighters and pay-per-view points and stuff, it kind of messes them over. At least that's what we know of the outside. We don't know all the details, obviously. And I would love to hear Connor at least give some credit to Habib. I mean, Habib won. 
and won pretty easily for the most part. I mean, third round, you know, he lost that, but dominated the fourth, dominated the second, and won the first. Beat Conor on the feet, beat him on the ground, beat him in the clinch, beat him in wrestling, beat him in, in transitioning, beat him in scrambles. He beat him everywhere. And you don't give him credit at anything. You say, lucky punch. This won't happen again. His wrestling was, like, not as good as they thought. Like, give him some credit, man. He beat you. And he walked you down. Connor said that he walked Habib down, and Habib was running away. Like, I never heard Connor ever say these kind of things. Like, Habib was running away. He didn't want to fight. I mean, there were points in the fight where he was walking you down. You know, he was walking Connor down in the third round, too, where he lost the round, but he was still walking Connor down, landing his own shots, too. And he's a wrestler, or he's a sambo artist. And even when Habib was walking down Connor, Connor landed a couple good shots. The biggest one was that right uppercut. But Habib never looked rocked at all. He was able to defend, block, and roll with all the punches. Habib's defense is really good, man. It's awesome. To be able to guard Connor's punches like that, where most guys are not able to do it, you got to give Habib a lot of credit for his striking defense. He rarely gets hit, man. Even when he's walking people down. Eli Quinta, Conor McGregor, Edson Barboza, Rafael Dos Anjos. There is Michael Johnson, but Johnson did connect one time throughout the entire fight. And he still walked all these guys down and beat them on the feet too, whenever it was standing. And Conor is trying to get a rematch. He said it. He wants to get a rematch. He says the reason why is because he got the last punch of the night. Um, that doesn't really mean anything because he still lost the contest pretty dominantly. And that's what the contest is. It's not about Habib's people. If you want to fight with those guys, you know, if you're going to say things like, I got the last punch on your brother. Okay, then what? You're trying to set up a fight with his brother now? Because that's not Habib. You didn't punch Habib there. Habib won the fight easily. Man, if they do the rematch, that's going to be, in my opinion, that's going to be really messed up. And Dustin Poirier even said that he still doesn't believe that he's going to get a title shot yet. Imagine passing up Dustin Poirier and Tony Ferguson for a rematch with Conor McGregor. As a hardcore fan, I mean, that's just kind of messed up. And the thing is also, Conor really doesn't have too many people to fight now. Because Nate's fighting, Tony's fighting, Cerrone's fighting, Poirier and Habib might be fighting, uh, Pettis is fighting. I mean, there is Rafael Dos Anjos who's calling him out, and that makes sense. Jose Aldo's calling him out. That makes sense too. I actually want that fight. That actually makes a lot of sense to make. It's very logical because Jose Aldo has been saying that he wants to go up to 155. Go up to 155, fight Connor again. Connor's coming off a loss. So why not? You know, him versus Jose Aldo. You could do him versus Javier Dos Anjos. I love both fights. To be honest, I like Connor with any fight, even Habib. I like that fight. I just don't like it more than Poirier versus Habib or Tony versus Habib or even Cerrone versus Habib. Now let's go to the questions here because I know there's a lot of them. Okay, so. For anybody new here, if you guys want to ask a question, usually on Sunday or Monday, you know, early in the week, I will post on my community tab on my YouTube page something like questions for podcasts, right? And then you reply your questions under there. And the questions with the most likes do get read first. And there's the other option. You can go on Twitter if it's more convenient for you. And you just tweet me any question you have. Make sure to hashtag them MMA meeting. But because my channel mostly focuses on YouTube and it does have that like-dislike component in there, it makes it a lot easier for me to pick out questions that you guys want to hear. So we're going to start with Sahil Singh. Well, apparently a lot of people want to know this. And that's another thing. I answer every question. Are you virgin? No. Would you fuck Joanna or Rose? I definitely think Rose is a lot more attractive. You know, Rose 10 times over. She looked really good when she had longer hair too. So the implants is a major turnoff for me. I know it's a very polarized conversation to have. You know, some people are like diehard for implants. 
or if you don't like them, they trash on you for it. And then there's people who are completely natural. I much prefer the natural look. So Robert Whitaker versus Nikita Krylov. I go with Robert Whitaker. Obviously, he's going to be bigger. He's not a small guy, man. He can go to 205 and do pretty well, I believe, especially because of his takedown defense. I mean, if you're stopping Yuval Romero's takedowns, I don't think a lot of the light heavyweights are going to be much of a problem. Um, So Nikita Krylov, I do think Whitaker would win. He'd be much, much faster. It won't be an easy fight. Because Krylov is a very dangerous striker. But I think Whitaker is a lot more technical. Misha Sorkinov. Sorkinov just doesn't have the chin. He'll be way too slow. His takedowns won't work. Uh, Shogun Hua. Shogun gets obliterated. Johnny Walker. He will dwarf Whitaker. I don't think Whitaker will deal with the size and athleticism that well. So I'll go with Walker. But I still need to see more of Walker. Like, this guy hasn't even been hit yet. Come on. Jimmy Manua. I'll go with Whitaker. He's just way too technical. Manua just open defensively. It's hard. If he lands on Whitaker, he could do some damage. But Whitaker's way better with his pacing. Way better with distance work. Way faster to get in. I mean, Manoa's going to be stunned out there by the speed of Whitaker. Glover Teixeira. This probably won't be that easy for Whitaker at all. Teixeira is very tight with the striking. He has big power and he has really good wrestling. And if he gets Whitaker to the ground, it's going to be tough. But... Whitaker has gotten past Jacare on the ground and stopped Romero's takedowns. So I don't think it's going to be too much of a problem for him to stop Teixeira's takedowns, especially with the speed that he fights at. And Whitaker's uppercuts will catch Teixeira all day. All day. So I'm going to go with Whitaker. Uh, Latifi, I got Whitaker. Weathers the early storm. Picks him apart for the rest of the fight. Corey Anderson. I'm going to go with Whitaker. The striking is just way too much. Takedowns won't be too much of a factor for Anderson, which is his main thing. Volkan Uzdemir. Again, I got Whitaker. Volkan's just way too slow. And I think he just gets intercepted a lot. You know, Whitaker fights from a very long distance, and Volkan wants you in close. So it's going to be tough for Volkan to get in there. Jan Blachowicz. This is probably a good fight. I think it'd be a bit competitive because Jan is a very, very good striker, and he has very good submissions on the ground, and just overall great BJJ. I'll go with Whitaker winning a decision. I think Jan will be there for the most part, and I think some of the body kicks from the outside can give Whitaker some problems. Dominic Reyes, this would be a competitive fight as well. But I'm going to go with Robert Whitaker. I think Reyes leaves himself open a little bit too much. You saw that a little bit against Uzdemir. And his redirecting has nothing on Robert Whitaker's footwork. He will not catch Whitaker off guard like he does everybody else. When Whitaker wants to redirect and when he wants to pivot and when he wants to shoot in close, redirect laterally and find head kicks and stuff or an uppercut or a right overhand or something, I think it's just a little bit better than Reyes' abilities. Anthony Smith. I got Whitaker in this one. A little bit faster. Has power in his hands as well. Just way more technical. He's going to find openings all over the place on Anthony Smith. Um, Tiago Santos. It could be dangerous. I do see Whitaker winning for the most part. But I do see him getting dropped. As he tries to come in and find angles on Santos. Potentially getting intercepted. Same way how he got intercepted by Romero in close. And Santos you know, find some success. But I see Whitaker winning a decision. Alexander Gustafson. I'm going to go with Gustafson in this one. Even though it's extremely close, I think Gus's boxing and his reach is going to give Whitaker a bit of a problem. And Gustafson has insane combinations and close. And he has good wrestling himself. He was able to take down Jones and DC. We'll see how Whitaker's takedown defense can hold up. Um, Daniel Cormier. Thinking about Whitaker fighting Cormier or Jones is like a thought you never had before. And it's exciting. Remember, this is Cormier at 205. This is not heavyweight Cormier. So the size is not going to be too different. Because Whitaker, I believe he walks around at like 220, 225 or something. I believe that's what Tyson Pedro said. And he is taller and he is longer. Cormier, when he weighs at 205, he usually gets up to like, what, 230 maybe, 220s. 
So they're going to be relatively the same size, I believe. Um, Whitaker is going to be more full. He's going to be healthier. He's going to be much faster, much better striker, much better with distance work. Takedown defense, I think, can last against Cormier, to be honest, because nobody really is able to cling onto Whitaker. They usually try to blast through him because he's just so fast, right? He gets in and gets out. He gets in, finds angles. They're not really able to grab onto a single, drive it to the cage, turn into a high crotch. Like, that's something you never see anybody do against Whitaker. Jacare tried, and he got outmaneuvered because of it. Call me crazy. Remember, this is just off the top of my head. Like, I never even thought about this fight before. Call me crazy, but I think Whitaker beats Cormier at 205. I think he wins most of the rounds. I would say out of the five rounds, he wins four. I think the first or second round where Whitaker is trying to adjust to Cormier is when DC is going to have some advantages and win that round. Now, Whitaker versus Jones. I got Jones. It'd be such an interesting fight to make. Whitaker is a much better striker. He has much better entry abilities, but Jones is stronger bigger, much better in the clinch, and that's where Whitaker is going to find a lot of trouble. If he gets in too close, which is what he's going to have to do, Jones is going to tie up with him, man. He could trip Whitaker out, land knees, land elbows, mix up the game on him. I think Jones is just a little bit too much, man. And then Volkanovski versus Wilder Fury. Well, Volkanovski can get up there and wait. When he was playing in rugby, didn't he weigh like 215? I'm not saying as much he's going to weigh now, but Wilder weighs around. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Volkanovski and Wilder... At one point, weighed the same. Um, Okay, in a street fight or an MMA fight or in a boxing fight. So in boxing, obviously Volkanovski gets torn apart and knocked out of the ring into the audience. In an MMA fight, I'll see Volkanovski wins. He has great leg kicks, great position. He can go for takedowns. On Fury, it's going to be a little bit harder because of his stance and his size, but against Wilder, he kind of gives you his leg. You don't have to be too close to driving for it. He can go for the single leg, change directions, turn corners, all sort of stuff that Wilder has no idea what's going on, and get him to the ground. And from there, I think Volkanovski can get his back, choke him out, or something like that. Leg kick's going to be a big weapon as well. Uh, I think he beats both of them. And in a street fight, it's pretty much the same, to be honest. If it's one-on-one, it's pretty much the same, except there's more illegal shots that Volkanovski can use. It's going to be harder for the bigger guy to use him against Volkanovski. No, the longer fighters can extend their hand and poke in the eye and stuff, but Volkanovski is not going to try and land overhands out from the distance. So, yeah, I still think Volkanovski wins either way. But it's not really too fair to put up boxers against MMA fighters, even in a street fight scenario, because one knows so much. You know, the boxers like Wilder and Fury, they pretty much have red chapter one, and they know everything in chapter one because they've read it a million times. Volkanovski knows the whole book. Now we go to Austin. How many thug roses would it take to beat Francis Ngannou? A lot. An army of them. Ngannou would be planting roses all day. But, uh, too much. Just too much. Like, over ten. Like, a lot. Acid Loud 77, who do you think is going to get popped by USADA next? There should be betting odds on this. I mean, the, the snitches or the, you know, the people that are, that are outing out the PED users are going to be helping with that. So, someone at Jackson's or someone that trains with Paulo Costa? I don't know, man. I don't know. Anybody can pop. I would not be surprised. People are, like, waiting for Romero. Like, people are just waiting until that announcement gets out because so many people don't believe that he's not on anything. I mean, even people I know that don't watch MMA that much anymore, they're like, did Romero pop yet? I'm like... No, I don't think he is doing anything. Then we go to Bossy. You have one minute to give someone advice who's going to an MMA fight. This person has zero experience fighting and watching fighting. He's going to fight another inexperienced person. What important advice would you give him going into the fight whilst trying not to overwhelm them with information? Yeah, that's a big one, right? That would be hard. One minute advice. I know nothing about this guy. To be honest, in this situation, it's impossible to give him anything important. 
to them because you don't know them. You don't even know how they are mentally. Like you could say one thing that will work for him, but it won't work for other people or vice versa. Okay, if I have one minute to give him advice, well, first of all, I have to tell him something mentally, such as, you know, this guy's also inexperienced. You're going out here to have fun, right? This is what you want to do. You brought yourself here. You brought yourself here for a reason. Just enjoy yourself out there. This is your passion. The most important thing is not to let yourself down. So give all you can out there, everything that you can do, everything that you understand, everything that you know. And as for technical advice, I'll be like, well, first of all, I'm going to say the jab. (laughs) You can't even give them technical advice because even if you do, it's probably not going to make sense to them either way. So what I would say is when you're on the outside, throw your power leg kick. If the opponent gets in closer, keep your hands up tight. Remember to always use your jab for everything you want to do. If you want to do something, use the jab first. Jab is first always. The jab is your best friend. It's your loyal companion. It's your noble steed. It's your spirit guide. I don't know what this person's really into. I'm trying to make sense to him. Um, Use the jab, use a straight, and always follow up with the left hook. Remember, jab, straight, left hook. Jab, straight, left hook. Always. And if you want to go for a takedown, remember what you do first always. Throw a jab. So you throw a jab then a big right overhand, then drive in your takedown with full commitment really hard. Remember though, always everything you do starts with a jab. Dude, I would love to see anybody do this. Imagine that. I would love to see great coaches like Farasa Hobby or something. Get them out there, give them one minute to someone who's inexperienced to see how they do, see how they apply it. But at the end of the day, I don't think it will work. You need to be there with them. You have to know how they're training. You have to know their opponent. You have to know their skills. And the most important thing is, You have to know how they are mentally. Are they psyched out? Are they excited? What kind of person are they? Are they fighting like they have something to lose? Or are they a person who is coming out there thinking that they have nothing to lose? You know, those things, man, you complete change your advice for them completely. That's pretty much the basic fundamental thing I would say to someone if I don't know anything about them or who they're fighting or their mental state, them even talking to me. Like, that's a great exercise, man. I really appreciate the the question. Now we'll go to Nathan. Douglas Lima versus Top 15 welterweights. I think I did this before too. I've done a lot of these, man. So uh, against Vicente Luque, well, it is a different Top 15 now. Versus Vicente Luque, I do have Douglas Lima winning. I think it's a war, but I think Lima's tight defense and his counter shots are just a little bit more fundamentally sound than Luque's. Actually, these two fight very similarly. Alijo Zaleski Dos Santos. Again, I'm going to go with Douglas Lima, but this would be a very good fight, man. If you pick Dos Santos in this one, I do not disagree. Neil Magny, I got Lima starching him. Starching Neil Magny. Takedowns are not going to work. He's just going to get blasted through. And the leg kicks are absolutely going to destroy him. What Ponzebo did to Magny's legs is nothing compared to what Lima will be able to do. Damien Maia would be a tough fight, but I do think Lima is going to be able to stuff the takedowns and just knock him out. Just simple. Uh, Leon Edwards, this be a good fight. Very well-rounded Edwards. To be honest, I do think Edwards would probably win this one. I think his distance work is not going to allow him to get countered that well. The leg kicks aren't going to be too much of a factor, especially on the southpaw Edwards. And Edwards' long straight left hand is going to be money against Douglas Lima. I hate saying that. It's going to be very effective against Douglas Lima. He just has a very good pulling out game, you know what I'm saying? What is wrong with me? Robbie Lawler, who would not pay for this fight? Can they do this fight, man? Can they just cross this guy over? Just for a fight, give, give him Robbie Lawler. That would be the one I would take. Um, This fight can go either way. It'd be a war. It'd be in your face, phone booth boxing. Lawler's going to march him down. If he doesn't, he's going to get his legs kicked, and it's going to force Lawler to get in the inside. And from there, it's going to be whose counter is going to land on who, and who's better defensively. And they both have that counter hook of theirs. Douglas Lima has that counter left hook as he's shelling up, and Lawler has his counter right hook as he's shelling up. And they've knocked people out before doing this. If I have to pick, I pick Lima. I pick Lima. It's going to be tough. I think the light kicks are going to be the deciding factor. In close, I think they're evenly matched. 
Santiago Ponsonibio. I'm going to go with Ponsonibio. I think his jab with his ability to get in and out with it, and it's extremely powerful, would be the biggest threat to Douglas Lima. He has power as well. If he sees that opening, if Lima gives him any opening by throwing out too much of a counter shot, Ponsonibio will land. Uh, Anthony Pettis, I think Lima's too big and too powerful. Pettis is not really going to get too much off on him as well. I think the leg kicks as well is going to do Pettis a little bit in. Um, just too much at the end of the day. Uh, Steven Thompson, this would be a close fight, but I'm going to go with Douglas Lima. I think the leg kicks are going to destroy Thompson. Very similar to like these karate fighters, man. Once he gets in close, they're going to be in danger. Tyron Woodley was able to do it. I think Lima is going to be able to do it as well, being a taller and longer fighter. Darren Till. I see Darren Till getting annihilated by a left hook. Just absolutely annihilated as he makes his way in. I mean, his chin's straight up in the air with no guard. And he has the same reach, I think, as Lima. He's going to fall right into a hammer, man. I don't want to see that. Ben Askren. The rematch. Okay. I see Douglas Lima knocking out Askren. His takedown defense has gotten so much better. His countering ability is going to be there. His kicks are going to be there. His head kicks, his body kicks, his teeps are going to be there to keep Askren away from him. Jabs are going to be there as well. I mean, I do think Askren is going to be able to win some rounds because of the wrestling, because of his ability to march down Lima. And Lima does have one weakness to the style, which is why I think Damian Maya will even give him some problems. He's not a pressuring fighter. He kind of allows opponents to walk him back. And he looks for counter shots. That will allow Ben Askren to get it to the cage and take him down a couple times. But I do think eventually, in the five-round fight, Lima will find an opening on Ben Askren. Jorge Masvidal. That'd be a really good fight. So, both very, very sound strikers. Wrestling's not going to be a factor besides Masvidal masking his boxing behind takedowns. I see Jorge Masvidal winning this. Um, I think his technical boxing is going to get him in to land a couple strikes and get him away from the counter shots. Masvidal's biggest and best ability is boxing defense. But because of that, sometimes he loses decisions because he isn't doing too much. But I do think he will do enough to win the fight, not getting landed at all, really, and just getting in and out with his boxing. How about Dos Anjos? I got Douglas Lima, just too powerful, too big. Wrestling's not going to be a factor. RDA is going to have to get way too close and potentially get countered as well. Colby Covington, now this would be a very tough fight for Lima. I actually would probably lean Covington because of his pressure and his ability to create chaos with his striking. Right, he'll throw flying knees and stuff. going to be hard for Lima to gauge the distance, engage the opening, and Covington is just going to hold on to him, trying to take him down the entire fight and not stop. The reason why he's a harder fight for Lima than Ben Askren is because Askren doesn't really have a great ability to get in, right? He kind of just walks forward and grabs onto you. Colby actually has striking capabilities. Ben Askren doesn't really throw too much to get in. It's a different era. It's hard to do that against a guy like Lima today. Tyron Woodley. I'll actually go with Woodley. I think he's a little bit more powerful, a lot faster. And the biggest thing is he's going to be able to work his wrestling with the powerful punches. The leg kicks are going to be neutralized, I believe, for both of them. And I think once Woodley gets in to throw that big right overhand and back Lima up to the cage... Lima's going to look for the counter left hook, but he sees Woodley always driving in for the double legs right afterward. And that's just going to be a repeated process, I believe. And Kamaru Usman. I got Kamaru Usman. Um, he's going to be able to do what Colby's going to do, but a lot better, a lot more efficiently, with better striking and with a longer reach. And be more powerful and stronger. Mr. Fatboy says what? Top 5 ass eaters in the UFC. In MMA, it'd be Dylan Dennis. <laughs> okay. Um, then we go to Fletcher McLaughlin, Prime Fader versus Top 10 at Heavyweight. Uh, let me rephrase it to save some time. So pretty much Prime Fedor, Prime Anderson Silva, Prime GSP, Prime Chocolate Dell, and Prime BJ Penn. How will they do today in the Top 10, Top 15? And I will also give the hardest matchup for each of them. So Prime Fedor will do very well. He'll beat most of them. Prime Chuck will not do that well at all. 
Prime Anderson would obviously do very well. He would beat most of them. Same thing with Prime GSP. He'll beat most of the fighters. Prime BJ Penn would lose to most of the top 10. Um, So Chuck and BJ would do pretty poorly, I think. Fedor would do very well. He probably won't make it to the top, but he would be a top contender. Prime Anderson and Prime GSP would be always around title contention or being the champion. And people ask me why. Well, BJ Penn and Chuck Liddell are extremely one-dimensional. Extremely one-dimensional. Way too much. BJ doesn't even move his feet. He doesn't kick. His boxing's okay, but he doesn't have movement or positioning. There's too many fighters in that division that would just pick him apart. Way too much. Chuck Liddell doesn't have any defense. All offense fighter. His defense was literally his chin. I mean... He used to take punches just to land his own. In today's light heavyweight division, you can't do that. I mean, who was he kind of fighting? Yes, he fought Kevin Railman, ended pretty quickly. But if he goes out there and fights guys like Thiago Santos, Anthony Smith, Alexander Gustafson, you know, these guys that can hit pretty hard, you know, Alou Latifi, you can go down the list. Jimmy Manuel, if he's taking their shots, he's not going to last. And for Fedor, Anderson, and GSP, you probably know why they would do so well. They're all pretty well-rounded. Anderson is striking his BJJ. Fedor and GSP and everything they do. The hardest fight for Fedor, I mean, he has some really tough matchups. He has Stipe is a hard matchup. DC is a hard matchup. Nganu is a hard matchup. Out of those, I'd probably say the toughest one might be DC. But Nganu is right there as well. I think he actually has a big chance to even beat Stipe. But against Nganu and DC, it's going to be tough. For Anderson Silva at middleweight, the hardest matchup is Yuval Romero, 100%, hands down. No one is as much of a kryptonite for Anderson than Romero is. At welterweight for GSP, he has a lot of hard matchups there, man. Usman will be a hard one. Woodley can be a hard one. Even Robbie Lawler would be a hard fight for him. Santiago Ponzinibbio is a very hard fight for him. But I'd probably say Kamaru Usman, to be honest, because of his wrestling. I think when GSP tangles up with Usman, he's going to find, oh... This is different because nobody's ever taken down Usman and he out-wrestles everybody. He even dominated Tyron Woodley with wrestling. Who has done that? I think Usman is GSP's hardest matchup. And to be honest, thinking about it, I'll love to see that fight. Chuck Liddell at light heavyweight. I mean, everybody's hard. John Jones. I mean, come on. BJ Penn at lightweight. The hardest matchup for him would be Tony Ferguson. It would be a nightmare. Brian Historia, would Jordan Burroughs, with one year of MMA training, be successful in the UFC? Would he be able to hang with them? Why or why not? Yeah, he could be successful. Well, what division would he be? 170? I don't know what division he would be at because he wrestles at 163. If he's going to 155, which I think is probably the logical weight class for him because he's so far away from 170, and he is a wrestler and size does matter in wrestling. At 155, man, you're talking about the hardest division in the UFC with no striking. With one year in MMA training, now he could be a prodigy and do very well with that one year, learning striking very, very quickly, but it's tough, man. He's not going to be some of the ranked guys. He's not going to be guys like Tony Ferguson and Khabib and all these other guys, obviously. But I think outside of the top 15, he'd do pretty well, actually. Then again, he's going to be fighting guys like Merbeck Tysimov and, you know, scary guys, man. Okay, so I'll say he will do pretty well because his wrestling's so elite and actually mixes up very well with MMA. He will do very, very well, but I just don't know where his striking would be at because I don't know what kind of a striker he would be. Everybody progresses very differently, so it's extremely hard to predict how someone would be in all-around MMA when we just know one aspect of their game. Sacrificial GOAT. How do I get ladies to do sex to me? Well, never say that again. You sound very desperate. Try not to be desperate. And second of all, you're a sacrificial goat, man. I mean, it's in your name. I think you'd be a very good wingman, right? Maybe not. 
Then we go to Jonathan Earth. If Moraes beats Sahudo, considering TJ's suspension, Dominic's injury, and Garbrandt's issues, who could be a threat to his hypothetical title reign? Could he be a threat at Featherweight as well? If so, who could he beat out of the top 15? Thanks. Who could be a threat to his reign at 135? I don't see anybody. <laughs> I don't see anybody. I think Corey Sanhagen could do some damage. I still think he loses. I know people don't like to hear me say this. I know you're thinking it right now. Oh, Weasel, please don't say it. I'm going to say it. I do think Sean O'Malley would actually be the only one that would give Morris any real threat to the belt. Maybe not now, but in the future, I believe he is the one. Because if I go down the list from a Sun Sao, you know, just beat him. Aljamay Sterling, he'll KO him again. Pedro Munoz, terrible matchup for Munoz. Jimmy Rivera, because you said not Cruz or Garbrandt. He just got KO'd in, what, 30 seconds. Then there's Corey Sanhagen, which I think would do pretty well, but he'll eventually get finished. Uh, Peter Yan, he's actually another one. I actually do think Peter Yan could give him some problems. He has a better boxing game, and he has extremely good wrestling. A little bit smaller, though, and the firepower from Morais may be a little bit too much. Actually, yeah, I don't know why I overlooked Peter Yan. In the top 15, I would say Peter Yan is the most threatening to Marlon Morais. Uh, there's John Lineker. Of course, he would be a threat because of his punching power, but I think Morais would be a little bit too quick and use his wrestling. Uh, Cody Stamen, no. Rob Font, no. John Dotson, no. Perez, no. Almeida, no. No, never. Yeah, so in the top 15, I would say it's Peter Yan. In the future, I would say it's Sean O'Malley. And at featherweight, yeah, I do think he would be a threat at featherweight. So I think he beats Kelvin Cater. You know, leg kicks are a problem. The wrestling's going to be a problem. He destroys Darren Elkins. Elkins won't take him to the ground, I believe, because of Moise's uh, takedown defense. And Moise is a big guy. He's a really big guy. I think he would fit in featherweight very well. Shane Burgos, that'd be a tough fight for Morais, of course. The boxing's going to be a bit of a problem, but it's the reach and the size. But I still think Morais probably edges it out because of leg kicks and his firepower. Chan Song Jung, I see Morais knocking him out. Korean Zombie just throws himself into the fire. And Morais is not dumb. I mean, he's not going to play that game. He'll find an opening, backing up, looking for it. Bomb on Korean Zombie every time. Yair Rodriguez, that'd be a tough fight for Marlon Moraes, especially with the movement. But I think eventually he'll edge out a decision. The wrestling will be there. The inside boxing will be there. I do think the leg kicks will eventually get his way in for the infighting. Ricardo Lamas, I got Marlon Moraes, more powerful, just way better of a striker. Mursad Bektik, that'd be a very tough fight for Moraes. I'll go with Bektik. I think his wrestling would be a big advantage in his pressure as well. He's just a little bit too big too. Josh Emmett, I'll go with Marlon Moraes. I think he's faster, makes better decisions in the pocket, and good wrestling defense. Now, this is one of the most competitive fights for Marlon Moraes, I believe. Jeremy Stevens, I got Marlon Moraes, too fast, won't play his game. Fight IQ is too high. Zabit, Magomasharipov, I got Zabit, just too long, too big. Wrestling will give Moraes some problems. The reach, the speed will give him too many problems. And the head kicks, I mean, the heck is going to be coming from all angles. Hanato Moicano, be a tough fight for Marlon Moraes as well. I do think Moraes will knock him out or TKO him. I see Moicano winning most of the fight due to his volume and reach. But I think Moraes will find his way on the inside, and Moicano will be lost in there. Frankie Edgar, I'll go with Marlon Moraes. It's just a bad fight for Edgar. They would never fight each other, but Moraes is better striking, more powerful, just as fast, good wrestling as well, great BJJ as well, and I think he's actually bigger than Edgar. Jose Aldo, Jose Aldo beats him. It's just too hard for Moraes. If the Jose Aldo shows up like he did two fights ago or three fights ago, Marlon Moraes is going to be in hot water the entire time. He's not going to find his way in without danger. 
His wrestling is going to be completely neutralized. The leg kick is going to give Moraes problems as well. Jose Aldo is just a little bit too fast and too crafty and just too technical with his boxing. Brian Ortega, I'd probably go with Ortega on this one. It'd be a very hard fight for Moraes. He's not going to use his wrestling. His power shots are going to meet Ortega's. And Ortega is just as powerful, if not more powerful. And his shoulder rolling is going to give the overhands of Moraes a bit of a problem to land. Volkanovski, this is a very competitive fight. Both very powerful, both fast, good wrestlers. Good kicks from both of them. Overhands. Punches are quick. They're so similar to each other. I think it go either way. And Max Holloway. I got Max Holloway in this one. The volume, the reach, the angles on the inside is going to keep Morice guessing the whole time. Hobo Sage, Mighty Mouse versus Rock Dwayne Johnson. A street fight. Mighty Mouse destroys him. Easy. John Skywalker. Who is the best pound for pound best fighter in your opinion currently and all time? Okay, currently the best fighter period in my opinion is Daniel Cormier. Because John Jones, I can't include him. Alright, if I'm including PEDs, then it's John Jones. Easily. Without PEDs, I think it's Cormier. Because he went up to heavyweight and knocked out the heavyweight champion. Not only the heavyweight champion, but the greatest heavyweight of all time in the first round. And he was a light heavyweight champion coming into it. And he's beaten the best guys besides Jones at light heavyweight. With title defenses. And he's defending his heavyweight title against Derek Lewis, who's much bigger than he is. So it has to be Daniel Cormier. I think number two, in my opinion, is Henry Cejudo. I think Henry Cejudo because he beat TJ Dillashaw. And not only beat TJ, he beat TJ Dillashaw, who was on EPO. He beat Super TJ. That's who he beat. Super TJ Dillashaw. And beat him inside, what, a minute? And as for the woman, by what the standards seem to be and how they are ranking pound for pound, it is Amanda Nunes, obviously. I mean, the best bantamweight of all time, the best featherweight of all time, best woman fighter of all time, beat everybody. But I think the most technical is Valentina Shevchenko. So in my list of pound for pound, which means who is the most technical fighter pretty much, I would say it is Valentina Shevchenko. But with the criteria that pound for pound is today, it is Amanda Nunes. And of all time... Best fighter of all time, pound for pound, GSP. He went up to middleweight, beat that guy, beat everybody he's ever faced before. John Jones obviously would be in the talks with him, but besides them two, there's nobody close. If you include PEDs, Jones and GSP are at the top and nobody else is close. Uh, quick questions. Tom Jensen, who would hurt you more with a strap on? Jessica Andrade or Amanda Nunes? That's so messed up. Nunes. I can't believe I'm answering that. Uh, <laughs> Bagirov. Askren just lost to Jordan Burroughs. Do you think this affects his outcome for his fight with Mazadal? No. He just took it for fun. You know, it was an opportunity to fight one of the best wrestlers, and he did it. He knew he was going to lose. He just wanted to not get beat badly. Then we go to Caleb Schmidt. Is there more than one type of punching power? Lawler's power versus McGregor's power? I think you mentioned something like this a while ago. Yeah, um, there is a difference. Okay, so power is force multiplied by speed or velocity. So, for an example, George Foreman. George Foreman doesn't have fast punches, but he has a lot of force behind them. Has a lot of weight behind his punches, which makes his power immense, right? But you look at guys like Mike Tyson, yes, there's a lot of force, but there's more speed behind his punches compared to someone like George Foreman, you know? So, it's a different kind of power there. Same thing with Lawler's and McGregor's. Now, McGregor's has a lot to do with accuracy and precision and timing and stuff like that. Yes, he has power, but I think those are the factors of why he knocks out opponents like he does. Lawler has crippling power. Lawler seems to have a lot of force. You can see the way he throws punches. They're very heavy. Not the fastest punches, but they look like they're hammers slamming on the opponent. Now, compare his punches to Ponzinibbio. Ponzinibbio's punches have a lot of impact. So they're not extremely heavy like Lawler's, but there's a lot of speed behind them. You know, a lot of explosion, a lot of snap in his punches, more than Lawler's. Lawler has a lot of force, a lot of weight, whereas Ponzinibbio has a lot of explosion in his punches. 
The weight and force behind punches is why guys like George Foreman and Stipe Miocic knock opponents out when it looks like they're not hitting them that hard. You're used to seeing these quick punches connect and KO people, but when the punches are moving slow and they land, it's shocking to see the opponent fold the way they do. So yeah, those are generally the different kind of punching power right there. Ryan Surratt, which Bellator fighter has the best chance of becoming UFC champion? Love your videos. Thank you so much, man. Probably Gegard Mousasi. Patricio Pitbull has a chance. Douglas Lima has a chance. I would say right now, Gegard Mousasi. His fight with Robert Whitaker would be insane. When he was so close to getting a title shot before he left the Bellator, I was super hyped they would make that fight. Such a competitive fight. I mean, Gegard has an amazing jab. He's one of the only guys I believe that can keep Whitaker at bay with that jab and with a straight right with some teeps, some good leg kicks as well. He has better grappling. Musasi's timing is impeccable. If it stays on the inside, that is where Whitaker is going to really do some damage. And we have seen Lyoto do the same thing. When Lyoto got in on Musasi, Musasi was kind of lost sometimes. And that is why I do favor Whitaker to win this fight because eventually I do think he'll find his way in, find that entry that he can go to the entire fight, and Musasi kind of gets thrown off. But I think in the beginning of the fight, Musasi can do a lot of damage. Another one by Basi, number one, which stylistic fights interest you the most? I like all fights, to be honest, but I like flashy striking matches. I come from Taekwondo, that's just, you know, something I always liked. So flashy kicks, good movement, those are the kind of fights I like to see. But I also love seeing that kind of fighter versus a brute, you know what I'm saying? Like a very physical fighter, such as Rose versus Jessica Andrade. You know, I love that fight. And which do you enjoy to watch the most least? Um, the least? Lay and pray fights. If one fighter just doesn't have good grappling or wrestling and they're just getting lay and prayed and the other guy is just sitting on top, I don't like watching those. I just kind of learn from those. Number two, do you reckon home advantage exists in MMA? Chill on his channel says, unlike in other sports, it definitely doesn't exist. And if anything, it's a disadvantage. It just depends. You can't say it is or it isn't. It just depends on the fighter. Some fighters perform a lot better at home. Some fighters just don't. They don't want the pressure. They like to go to another country and not deal with hometown pressure that's directly related to them, right? If they have pressure from strangers or this country that they're in that they aren't related to, it could be a bit easier, you know? But again, like Conor McGregor, when he fought at Ireland... His whole team won. It was a big thing for them. They were super motivated to fight there. Michael Bisping has never lost in the United Kingdom. You know, GSP fighting at Canada. I mean, obviously, I think he performs very, very well there. It just depends, man. There's no way to say it does or it doesn't. But it definitely does have an effect. Number three, do you think all MMA fans, media, including yourself, are overwhelmed by the recency bias unconsciously? Yes. I'm honest with myself. I do have it as well. When things happen recently... I do tend to jump onto the excitement. Sometimes I let the passion get ahead of my analytical judgment. And fans do as well. Let's be honest, we've been watching MMA for a while, right? Whenever someone loses, all of a sudden they're washed up, they're garbage, they're never coming back. PEDs, they're on steroids. But if they win, they're the GOAT. You know, the greatest of all time. How many greatest of all times have we witnessed in the last two years? You know what I'm saying? Like, how many times have people labeled fighters as, oh, he's the greatest this, he's the greatest that? After like one win. Obviously, it's accumulation of things, but then the next thing is, no, they're not the greatest. Like the bantamweight division. It was Dominic Cruz, then it was Cody Garbrandt, then it was TJ Dillashaw. Now we don't know. Josie Aldo was the biggest victim of recency bias. I mean, he was the GOAT, the greatest featherweight of all time. Then he loses to McGregor. And now he'll never be the same. He sucks, you know. Then he goes and beats Edgar, more convincing than before. And this is like a prime Frankie Edgar. 
And now all of a sudden, he's better than ever. This is the best Josie Aldo we've ever seen. Then he loses to Max twice, and he's washed up and old. He'll never come back. He's old news now. Then he goes and TKO Stevens and Moicano, and now he's never lost it. He's as good as ever. And then he goes and loses to Volkanovski, and now he's old again. Like, it's crazy. So yeah, recency bias in MMA is a very real thing. Media, fans, me, you, everybody. Just in general, it's all over the place. And I do think it happens unconsciously. I don't think we actually are like, oh, he won recently, so that's why he's the best. No, we're very passionate. We love the sport. And to be honest, recency bias, yes, it could be annoying sometimes, but it also makes things fun. It's like living in the moment for MMA. And we just all enjoy that moment. Thanks, Weasel. Keep it going, mate. Thank you so much, man. Great questions. Now we're going to go to the Twitter questions. All right, we're going to start with at Aiden P. McGowan. I wasn't around on Twitter in 2016. Was there the same stigma that McGregor couldn't beat Diaz because he got dominated in the first fight like there is right now with Habib versus Conor rematch? Well, first, I don't think McGregor got dominated, you know, throughout the fight. Maybe just that later part of the fight. But um, not really. There are a lot of people that still thought McGregor had a chance. With Conor versus Habib, it's like, don't even make the fight. Like, Connor doesn't really have much of a chance. That's what's going on here. So it's a lot stronger now. With Diaz, it was just like, McGregor was in there. He had his moments, you know. He won the first round. You know, he could do some things. With Habib, it's like, it's gonna be tough. You know, give him a rematch. I don't I don't see him winning. Like, that sort of thing. So, no. It's a bit different. Obviously, there is a difference because Connor was way more motivated man back then, and Diaz didn't dominate him quite like Habib did. Right, right. I don't want to see a rematch right away, but I wouldn't write off Connor surprising the world in a rematch with a better game plan. I agree with that as well. I went with Connor for a reason with his fight with Habib. I did see things he could do. He didn't do exactly what I thought he was going to do. Like John Kavanaugh. John Kavanaugh was telling Connor, pressure him, but let him come at you. You know, stalk him and then counter. That would have been a much better game plan. That's exactly what I thought he was going to do before the fight. But he was just attacking, just straight up attacking and got himself in very bad positions because of it. Then we go to at UA Smatigo. Did the Adesanya Gaslam fight change how you see Robert Gaslam fight going? No, no. If anything, it pretty much confirmed to me that Gaslam would give Whitaker a bit of a hard time. Um, In close, Whitaker's gonna have a problem, like every which way around. He's just gonna have a problem against Gaslam. Gaslam was able to find his way in on Adesanya. He'll be able to do the same against Whitaker. The left hook and even the right hook, as Whitaker's trying to get away, can eventually find its home. So I do think it pretty much confirmed what I thought that fight would probably be like. Whitaker would probably still win, but it'd be a very hard fight for him. I still think Gaslam's a harder fight for Whitaker than Adesanya is. At Cam Brook, which fighters make the best use of their reach pound for pound? Number one is Jones. No one does it better than Jones. Francis Ngannou's pretty good with his reach. Gustafsson is also very good with his reach. Conor McGregor, very, very good with his reach. Uh, Tony Ferguson's decent. Not the best, but decent. Adesanya's pretty decent, I would say, too. He just sometimes allows opponents to get in on him. Amanda Nunes is excellent with her reach. Rose is decent. Ioana's uh, like a master with her reach. Zabit is pretty good with it. Oh, great question by Kiwi1044. Is the idea of a good gas tank kind of a silly concept in MMA given that we know about fast versus slow twitch athletes? For an example, Woodley has a quote-unquote bad gas tank, but that's just because he expels energy faster due to his fast twitch explosive movements. But he manages it by strategically exploding. Same with Connor and others. It's like explosive fighters get a bad rap for gas tank. But guys like Gaethje and Nate Diaz, more slower twitch guys, can mismanage their energy and no one mentions it. Nate vs. Connor 2, Gaethje versus Dustin. You win the day, Kiwi 104. Not just great question, I mean, you had some good input there. 
I 100% agree with you. This is the, the exact thing that people were saying about Yoel Romero. Why was he able to last against Whitaker in the second fight, but he was kind of gassing out in the first fight? And how was he exploding in the third round against Luke Rockhold? When usually that's like the moment where he starts to fade. It's because of, uh, like you said, strategical exploding. So yeah, it all comes to strategy. Romero, in the second fight with Whitaker, why do you think it was a less action on his part than the first fight? Like, less output, less exploding. Yes, there were explosive moments, but he was managing it. He was limiting the amount of explosion he needed. Gas tank could be around the same, you know? Like, pretend there's a capacity and they're both at like 100. And we'll put Romero against Weidman because Weidman's a bit more slow twitch. Romero's more fast twitch. Every time they explode, let's say Wyman decreases by like, we'll say five. He, he decreases by five on his capacity. But every time Romero explodes with the same commitment, it goes down like 15. You know what I'm saying? Potentially their gas tank is relatively the same. But the usage, the amount they're putting out from that capacity, from that tank, is not even. Because of fast twitch versus slow twitch. Nate Diaz is known to have amazing cardio, known to be able to explode constantly because he is more of a slow twitch fighter, explode constantly and not completely drain out his gas tank. But Connor, because he's super fast twitch, he can't do the same. Because of his fast twitch, he's able to land with the same amount of damage with one punch that Nate's going to be able to do with like five punches, you know, five big punches. And it's also the appearance, and you see it from the commentators a lot. The commentators really do sway the audience with gas tank and all this stuff, such as Tyron Woodley. They always say Tyron Woodley has a bad gas tank. He never really showed it. Like, he never gasses out, right? He's never out of gas. Because, what do you see Woodley always doing? He's sitting back, looking for his opening. You don't see him constantly exploding for the big shot, like Conor did in his first fight with Nate Diaz. Then he would gas out. But because he's this big, muscular guy, you know, bulky and full of muscle, looks really athletic, explosive, they automatically think he has bad gas tank. And that just plays into their narrative throughout the entire fight. But think about it. What fights has Tyron Woodley gassed out? I can't name one in recent fights. You could say the Kamar Usman fight a little bit toward the end because Usman was really putting it on him and draining of his energy. But he wasn't really completely gassed out. He really just didn't do anything the whole fight since the beginning. So yeah, the fast switch and slow twitch thing is a better thing to say, especially for the commentators, you know, because when they keep saying poor gas tank and stuff like that, such as Zabit, right? Zabit, I would say, is a bit in the middle. Uh, maybe he's a little bit more on the fast switch side. You know, a little bit more on the fast switch because he is actually extremely explosive. But he lays out so much output and so much explosion and not just regular punches and stuff. I'm talking about like spinning kicks, jumping off the cage and all sort of stuff. He's depleting his gas tank because of it. So yes, it's management. Management of your cardio. That is the thing. Nate versus Connor too. What did he do at the end of the second round all the way to the end of the third round? He just exploded everything he had into Connor McGregor. And it wasn't one, two, three, four, five big punches. He was doing like 50 to 70 punches in there in those rounds by that time, you know. And we're talking about power shots, explosion as much as he can go. If Connor does that, he will gas out halfway through that. You know what I'm saying? If Connor's throwing his biggest punches, he will start feeling it within like 20, you know, like 25. I'm like, oh shoot, too much explosion, too much fast twitch. Great point, KB104. Then we go to at Devante that trip six. I know you said Ngannou would obliterate JDS, but do you think Sagano could try to play a point fighting game as opposed to brawling with Francis? Also, it would be cool if you added fight of the night and performance of the night predictions in your prediction videos. Yeah, that would be actually awesome. I was actually also thinking if it's a pay-per-view, predict the pay-per-view buys, but on the ESPN Plus thing, it's just hard. So if JDS point fights with Ngannou, his chances of winning skyrocket. And actually, I've been thinking about it a lot more since I said that. JDS can win. 
I do still think Ngannou will obliterate JDS, not because the fight's that easy for him, but as soon as he touches JDS, it's over. And I think it will happen. But JDS has fought Ben Rothwell. Yes, Ben Rothwell's not as big and scary as Ngannou. But the sequence I remember that makes me think that JDS has a good chance of landing on Ngannou and rocking him. Remember when JDS kind of dipped? I think he threw a jab to the body very quickly to get his way in. And threw that huge right overhand on Ben Rothwell and rocked him. He could do that sort of thing with Ngannou. That's a point fight with explosive punches to end the fight with. Use his speed of getting in and out. He can do that to hurt Ngannou. But... Ngannou is not a plotting fighter who just sits there like Ben Rothwell. Ngannou is very good at moving backwards. Look at Andre Arlovsky. Arlovsky tried to attack from the outside, almost like a point fighting sequence. Attack with the right hand from the outside and Ngannou moved back a little bit. Uppercut. It's scary with Ngannou, man. I still love the fight because you never know. JDS has dynamite in his hands as well. The thing about uh, punching power, the difference in punching power, JDS has a lot of speed in his punches. He has some force. But most of his knockout power comes because of his speed. When he throws those limbs of his, they are coming at a velocity that barely any heavyweights are able to throw with the kind of leverage that he has. And Ganu, on the other hand, has fast punches, but he has immense force behind them. So he has all of it. Everything you want in punching power, Ganu has it. And that's why him and someone like Deontay Wilder could just put anybody out with anything they throw. Right? The force was evident when he put Cain Velasquez limp. Not a fast uppercut. Not a lot of motion to get that speed in there. It was just force. Just all his weight behind it. Bam. Um, and then look at his uppercut when he fought Alistair Overing. From the point that he cocked back his left hand and threw it up at Overing, the punch was so fast with all of that momentum and leverage and weight behind it. One of the most devastating punches you'll ever see. Then we go to At and Cambrook. Top 5, 10 nastiest ground upon artists. It must be consistent, not one or two fights with good ground upon. So number one of all time, Khabib. He's the best. It's an art when he does it. Like, it's something you have to learn to get as good as him. It also comes with great positioning and good wrestling, but the ground and pound is ferocious. Ferocious at every position, from half guard to side control to full mount to stacking to in the guard, like, everywhere. This guy's so dangerous with him. People like to say Tito Ortiz because, you know, he kind of revolutionized ground and pound. Perhaps, but nastiest. Aspen Ladd is probably the best woman ground and pound artist right now. Nunez is pretty devastating with ground and pound, but that was one fight with uh, Katsangano. Fedor, Fedor's definitely up there. I would say Fedor is probably number two. John Jones is up there, probably number three. You know, his elbows. I mean, look at the guys he's finished on the ground. Not only finish, look at the guys he's destroyed on the ground with ground and pound, such as Brandon Vera. Do you guys remember that? Remember when he destroyed Brandon Vera's orbital bone? I mean, the power he generates in his elbows on the ground is absolutely ferocious. It's so scary. Finishing Daniel Cormier was one of the scariest ground and pound moments I've ever seen. When he got Vitor in the crucifix and started just levering elbows in there. Matt Hughes had really good ground and pound as well. So any of those guys. But the top three, I would say, is Khabib, then Fedor, then John Jones. Then the last one, I'll go to at Zach Smalls. Thoughts on Javier Mendez ranking Habib's opponents from least threatening to most threatening. Max, Dustin Poirier, Tony Ferguson, then Connor. Sounds to me he wants Habib to fight Connor again. It's Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson can match Habib in most areas where everybody else can't. Yes, Connor can knock him out on the feet, but I think what Javier is trying to say is nobody can match Habib on the ground and in the wrestling, which is why Connor, being the most dangerous boxer out of those guys, he has the best chance of landing that shot and putting out Habib. I think that's what he's saying. But that's just maybe a little bit too much confidence in Habib's grappling to compare him to Tony Ferguson, for an example. If Tony goes out there and submits Habib, then what? 
It's a possibility. Tony's BJJ is scary. It's nasty. And not only that, his elbows off his back is something Khabib has never fought against before. And even Kevin Lee said that was the thing that completely disrupted him against Tony Ferguson. They're a lot more impactful than they look. Tony's a better striker as well. More dangerous, more powerful, way longer. More weapons there. He has good takedown defense. He has submissions when you try to go for takedowns. He has Granby rolls, which is something Khabib has not fought against. I mean, a little bit against, uh, what's his name? When he fought April Trujillo a little bit, but this is a different thing, man. This is a completely different thing. And not only that, he can go five rounds at the highest pace Khabib wants to go and probably outlast Khabib. I think Tony has the best cardio in this division as well as best management of it. In my opinion, if I were to rank this, I would say number four is Max Holloway. I agree with that. I've always said that. People thought I was crazy when I thought Khabib would dominate him. I still think Khabib would dominate him the same. Number three, between Poirier and Connor would be tough, I would think. Because Poirier has more weapons to last with Khabib. Maybe, I wouldn't say last, but more areas to compete with Khabib than Connor does. But Connor is more dangerous on the feet. I would say Connor's number three, then Dustin Poirier, then Tony Ferguson. I'm surprised he didn't even include Donald Cerrone. Donald Cerrone is actually, I would put number two, right behind Tony Ferguson. So that's the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure to give it a like. And if you're listening to the audio version of this, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. A couple things coming out soon. Prediction video, MMA prospects video, merchandise is getting close. So be looking for all those. And again, thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.